I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me please one more time this morning. We want to honor the reading of the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 10, verse 45. This is our series text uh, from the... Yes, there we go. Let's read it together. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now, you know what a ransom is. Somebody has been captured and someone is paying for the release. So when Jesus Christ comes, He is literally laying down His life in service, first of all, to the Father. He's serving the Father. And in serving God's purpose, He ends up serving us in setting us free and releasing us in paying the blood money and paying the price, literally His precious blood that was shed for us. How many of you are thankful for that this morning? Quick review. We are in the Gospel of Mark. Last week we jump back in and we're talking about the gospel. The gospel is the history-making, life-changing, good news of Jesus Christ. So with that this morning, let's bow our hearts together in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity together with friends today as we are in this place and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to move uh, by your power, by your presence. Uh, there is absolutely nothing that we can do in any kind of way to uh, alter any person's circumstances uh, whether it's temporarily or, or, or eternally. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you do that. And we, re we release you today. We say, have your way. The Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we ask you, Spirit, be Lord in this place. Lord, be yourself this morning. Uh, have your way, we pray. And Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you open our eyes to see, our ears to hear uh, the gospel that goes forth this morning, not just for those who might receive it the first time and cross the line of faith, but Lord, the continuous reapplication of the good news of grace, of what you're doing and pouring out in our lives and transforming us uh, by your blood, by your spirit. In the name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. Um, we, we jumped back in last Sunday morning into the gospel of Mark just another little bit of reconnection in the way of a review. This is the eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter as told to his disciple John Mark. Therefore, we get the name of the gospel, the gospel of Mark. It's the shortest, 16 quick chapters and written in a very, very almost a fast-paced kind of a movie script sort of way because you see so many of these words that are connecting and they'll say immediately, and straightforward if you read the King James. And so it'll, it'll talk about how all of a sudden there's this change. It's like scenes that are changing from a multi-camera viewpoint and immediately you see a shift into another scene. And this is uh, done on purpose for speaking the gospel into the lives of Romans particularly. It was written, uh, that was the empire that was ruling in the time when Jesus Christ came. Julius Caesar has died. His nephew Octavius has come to the throne and he is called by the Roman Senate Augustus, which means revered. So we have Augustus Caesar on the throne when Jesus Christ is born and we're still in the time of those, in the Julio-Claudian uh, rule of the Roman Empire. And so the Gospel of Mark is written with a very specific purpose of showing that Jesus Christ is the great ox, the burden bearer, the one who gets up under the needs of humanity and it's showing the strength and the humility because it's appealing to those in the Roman Empire because of their strength, yet it takes an opposite approach of Jesus who gets up underneath and bears the burden 
of the sins of the world to become the Savior of the world. Somebody say amen. And so that gets us reconnected. We've, we've differentiated between religion, which is advice, and gospel, which is news, something that has taken place. It is a fact stated of something that has already occurred. The gospel is what Jesus has already done for us as opposed to religion, which tells us and informs us, advises us, uh, if you'll do this, then you can probably have a better life, 10 steps to a good marriage. It, and there's really necessarily nothing wrong with that until you start looking at that as a means of salvation. Because there's there, there are certain steps to accomplishing anything. Anytime you set out to have a goal met, many times you do it in ladder steps, in little small bites. But when you start looking to uh, see your, your eternal soul saved by the steps that you take, then it's become dead religion. And that's how we're differentiating between the gospel which is done and religion which says do. Say that with me right now. Gospel says done. Say it again. Gospel says done. Religion says do. Now, which one of those two do you want? I want the done part. Somebody said, if it ain't done, don't eat it. So let me just let you know that around here that when we preach the gospel, we, we want to put a stake in front of you that's well done. It is a finished, done work. We don't want something that's still incomplete and raw and something you've yet to do, but it's all that Jesus has done. And so look at your neighbor and say, if it ain't done, don't eat it. All right. I want to jump in this morning because we have a very interesting passage of Scripture as we move from the triumphal entry. Last week we talked about the dominion of Christ over nature, over animals, economically, over owners of donkeys, um, over the hearts of people that are responding, that have those of disciples that are convinced now after nearly three and a half years of ministry that this is Yeshua HaMashiach. He is the anointed one. He is the Christos. He is the Christ. He is Lord. He is God come in the flesh. And so they're believing that. And there's a multitude that's gathered down this little alleyway as Jesus makes what is called his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and he rides the back of a donkey. And we talked about that signifying his coming as the Prince of Peace as opposed to a conqueror who arrives on the, the back of a horse which usually signifies warfare and there's going to be bloodshed. So Jesus is coming and they're lauding him, they're praising him, they're saying blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And we talked about the fact that Hosanna is both a praise and a petition. It is both praising him for who he is and it's making a demand upon him for who he is. Save us, O Lord. Rescue us is what Hosanna means. Praise, praise you, save us is what they're saying. So they're saying Hosanna to the, to the highest, to the son of David in the highest. And in this moment, we see all of this celebration. There are branches that are cut, rushes from the field. People have taken off their coats and thrown them in the way as a symbol of their identity, that they're tying their livelihood, their welfare, who they are as people is tied to the identity of this, this Messiah, this Christ, this son of David that they're looking for. And uh, as we open up into this next passage, it is a really interesting section here that, that in, in many times folks end up dividing it into two or three messages. And, and I think that's fine. Certainly, every one of these segments can be a whole message in itself. 
But if we lose the continuity of the whole, we really lose the meaning of what's being shared. Um, somebody a long time ago, and this is a statement that preachers say everywhere all the time, and that it seems to, in most places, not even phase them, that a, a text without a context is a pretext. And that's sort of homiletic talk for if you don't ground what you're saying into the whole of the context, a verse within a section, a section within a whole chapter, a chapter within a book, a book within the whole of, of redemption story in all of the Bible, it continually has to be grounded into a larger context, then you can take the Bible and make it say anything you just darn well please. And we've got people on TV that are doing that. I think in some circumstances, this particular text has been manipulated a little bit. And I'm going to talk about that this morning. But I want you to see that, that from this whole text, we're looking at a historical judgment that is about to take place on the covenant nation of Israel. Jesus is foretelling something that is coming in what we might call the very near immediate future. In just a few verses, in the next couple of chapters, he's going to pronounce judgment on Jerusalem and on the temple itself and say that there is coming a day in your generation, those of you that are standing here, this generation will not pass until you see these things happen, he said. And he said there won't be one stone left standing. And he's talking about on the temple mount, which obviously was a source of incredible pride for all of the children of Israel, for the nation of Israel, the temple had become something that God never intended that it would be. It had become an identity with the people of Israel as sort of their place of transactional salvation. I think that we can easily do that in any of our denominations, in our non-denominational expression here at Victory, where we can easily take a little bit of a position of pride and feel like that we are in some ways more developed than other groups, God forbid that would happen. We always make an attempt to try to preach a large perspective of the whole body of Christ that there is one vine in many branches, there is one river in many streams, there is one body in many members, there is one nation in many tribes. We are just one of those. We are not all of that. Okay? But it can easily happen here as much as it has where religious ritual comes in and form becomes crystallized and tradition that's good becomes traditionalism that is bad. Tradition is the living faith of your dead fathers and mothers. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those of us that are living right now. And we want the first and don't want the second. And what has happened to Israel is that they've taken hold of this in a traditionalism kind of, a, kind of an attitude. And even when God gave the first temple in all of its glory and grandeur under Solomon, He said there's no way that anything on the earth made by man can really in any fullest sense of the word hold or house the presence of God. So what has happened is in the last three years it has just come to the attention of a few people who the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes that the real temple, God dwelling among men, the habitation of God walking in the earth now in living, breathing form, God in flesh, the incarnation of the Most High God, El Elyon, is now walking on the planet among us and so now the house walks into the house of Israel. As a matter of fact, uh, Ezekiel chapter 21 verse 27 says, I will overturn, I will overturn, I will overturn 
until he whose right it is comes and takes his place of judgment and authority. The, the, the ESV says, a ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it until he whose right it is to take the judgment seat. And so this morning, what we're going to see is Jesus is going to curse a fig tree. He's going to walk in the temple and he's going to turn over some tables, fulfilling Ezekiel 21. I will overturn, I will overturn, I will overturn until he whose right it is comes. And guess, guess who it's talking about when it says he whose right it is? Everybody say Jesus. So Jesus is taking his place of authority this morning. We've got three segments here and every one of them are tied together in one big picture. Let's begin in verse 12. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Our first section is verses 12 through 14. The Bible says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, Jesus is hungry. Now, that blows my mind right there alone. That the, that the creator of all things living, he who opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing, creates the opportunity for everything alive to be able to eat and enjoy not just food to sustain you, but he made it taste good. Now, if you'll stop and think about that, there's glory to God in that. God could very functionally have created food that had absolutely no taste whatsoever, but that did the job to sustain you and make you well and whole. But he included something amazing in it called these beautiful experiences on the, the, all of this, these amazing cells that are on this little thing right here, this multiplied hundreds of thousands of taste buds that are able to differentiate between sweet and sour and salty and bitter and all these great experiences in tasting what God has made. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come on, somebody. So he who created everything himself is hungry. So God is now fully man at the same time. He's flesh, verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Look at your neighbor and say, nothing but leaves. <laughs> found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. That's important. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this is the only time where Jesus ever uses the power of the spoken word for anything that is destructive. Every time he speaks the word, it is always to bring order out of chaos, to settle a storm and bring peace, to send the word to a sick uh, servant of a Roman centurion, to go along with a grieving family whose little girl is at the point of death and Jairus' daughter, and to walk in a crowd and to feel the power of God literally move from him when a little woman who had been stricken with an issue of blood for a considerable period of time reaches out and touches the hem of his garment and he said, I felt virtue, I felt power, I felt dunamis, Greek word, go out of me. Every time he ever speaks, it is always for a constructive reordering, realignment. It's the picture of righteousness in reordering creation, in a right relationship, a right order with God to get us 
back in order with Him and then to get us back in order one with another. That is what righteousness means. It means I'm in right standing with God. The, the, the relationship between me and Him, the upward reach, reaching bar of the cross and, and now there's an open heaven to me and now the outward reaching bar of the cross to where I'm reaching to a brother and a sister in a relationship between friend and family and spouse and parent and child and employer and employee and neighbor and friend and all of these things that Jesus summed up in the two great commandments, taking the ten and boiling them down to one, a two. And he says this, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the upward bar. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the outward bar of the cross. Jesus is coming to bring a complete line of demarcation and a distinction between a living relationship with Him and the dead religion that is currently being propelled out into the heart's of the people of Israel. The fig tree throughout Scripture has always stood for the covenant nation. I could stop and take you to multiple locations through the prophets this morning, through the poetry books, and talk to you about how God has always used the symbol of the fig tree to signify His people. Various trees of the forest, cedars of Lebanon and their grandeur and stature. There was the heart that God had was for the fruit that came from the fig tree. He said that there would come a time in the new covenant where every man would sit under his vine and his fig tree. And it was supposed to be the demonstration of Israel that would be a light among all of the nations. And instead of being a light to serve the nations, it had turned and become a judgmental, religious kind of an institutional traditionalism where they were looking down their noses of, of pharisaical legalism and they were judging and condemning the rest of the world instead of being a light for the world to be able to come in. And they had taken it and turned the tables. And if you'll remember when Adam and Eve first sinned, their first inclination was to cover up. And does anybody remember what kind of tree leaves they chose to sew together? Fig leaves. Isn't that interesting? That they're in that very first moment of complete nakedness and I don't believe that so much means nudity as it just means exposure they're realizing that there's something wrong there's a there's a lack of alignment there is chaos there is not righteousness there is not right order or right standing between them and the father and they recognize that they're they're missing something the glory of the Lord I believe had departed that had covered them and so they took fig leaves and sewed them together and made aprons and they try to come up, cover over what now they recognize parts that should require some modesty. And there in that spot, God gave them a proper covering. He slayed an animal, which if an animal is going to give up its skin, what does, has to happen to the animal? It's going to have to die. It's going to have to shed some blood. And so before they depart from the garden, God slays an animal. And it's a picture of innocent blood being shed for unrighteous, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. And they leave covered with coats of skins because an animal died in their place. And in that very spot, God made a promise and said that the seed of the woman would bruise the seed of the serpent. That's Genesis 3.15. We call it the protoevangel. It's the very first time where we see the gospel spoken in a promise. It's not going to stay in this Disorder. It's not going to stay in this chaos and all this disarray. And their first attempt was to try to take fig leaves and sew together a kind of religious covering. People still do it thousands of years later after our forebears, Adam and Eve, and they 
come to churches and they sew together their involvement in a few programs and they sit in the back and don't really want to be discovered or don't want to be known and just kind of you know stay aloof from everybody else, don't want any relationships, I don't want to be uncovered. And it's so easy to just to go through the motions and be living in a place of, of religious advice, of if you'll do this and you're always never having peace. You're always looking for something. It's the proverbial carrot stuck out there in front of the donkey where you're reaching and yet the heavens always remain closed. And Jesus comes and he looks at a fig tree, having remembered that all the way back to Adam, recognizing that the fig tree throughout the history of the covenant people had always symbolized the nation and God saw what had happened. The temple was now being used for salvific reasons. It's transactional. If you'll just come and do this, And basically God is saying the judgment of God is now coming on the fig tree. God was literally cursing Israel. He was cutting it off. Uh, Notice here that this actual tree itself didn't have any figs and it even says it wasn't the season for figs. Now, think about this. Is that really fair to that tree? Jesus is hungry and he looks for some figs on a tree And I realize that Jesus is not just doing something on a whim. He is not just so overcome with a personal, natural desire that he gets angry and he just, you know, all of a sudden fire sprays out of his fingertips and he curses the tree. I don't think Jesus operates like that. This is the same guy, remember, who went to the wilderness and who was tempted by Satan for 40 days at different times, turn these stones into bread if you're really the son of God. When he was at his weakest point, he knew and had the ability to bring his flesh in line. This is not a matter of a whim going on in the heart or the mind of our Savior. He's doing something on purpose. He's never used the power of the spoken word for any destructive means, but he's showing people what is about to happen. He's just come into Jerusalem On the back of a donkey, he's been declared to be the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Crowds have said that. He gets off the donkey, walks into the temple. On the way, actually, he walks in the temple and looks back around and he comes back out. It's the end of the day. He goes back to Bethany with the twelve. There's been a huge crowd that's been screaming in the streets, Hosanna to the son of David in the highest. He then goes back to Bethany with his own group, his twelve disciples. Now, we've got the core... The committed are right here with him. Now realize that even among this committed group of 12, one of them is going to betray him. One of them is going to doubt him and say, I'm not going to believe it's him until I can put my finger in, his, in the hole in his hand and stress, uh, thrust my hand into his side. So we've got a betrayer, we've got a doubter, and we've got Peter, the head honcho of the whole group, who before it's over with is going to deny him. Jesus is going to redeem and reach out to him in a very special way and it's going to be a trying time over the next few days that we're seeing in Jerusalem as Jesus marches toward his destiny and that's to die on the cross and become the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Are you following me? Now they want him to come and be a king but they don't have any idea what it's going to take for him to do that. They're thinking he's going to topple the Roman government and get up here on a throne and straighten out everything that they don't like about the current presidential administration. The current Caesar that's on the throne. The way the Roman centurions are treating us. The way these tax farmers here, the collectors that are running around, hired by the Roman Empire, that are our own people and are literally the crazy IRS agents that are, that are charging us these outrageous rates of interest. So... Little be announced 
to them what's about to happen, Jesus begins to set the order into place and he walks past the fig tree one day and with deliberation that next morning he says, with in complete deliberate attempt, he, he looks at the tree and he says, may no man ever eat from you again. And they continue walking and they don't really notice anything about it. Point number one is this, Jesus is hungry and he's looking for fruit. And it's not enough that we in our own lives should just be real leafy in religious programs. We can have all the foliage of what looks like outer growth, but if there's no fruit on the tree, Jesus is not interested. And He will look and say, May no man ever eat fruit from you again. And let me say this, in the Spirit it's different than it is in a natural tree because there are seasons where the fruit bears and there are seasons where there is no fruit. But in Christ, we are always to be walking in love, having our hearts filled with joy, being motivated by a spirit of peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. All of those nine kinds of fruit are to be growing in varying degrees on the branches of our trees of righteousness. Come on, somebody say amen. Jesus is looking for fruit. He is hungry. He wants to, he wants to have a taste uh, of His own nature that's growing in your life, that is producing fruit. Realize, fruit is not something that you do. It happens naturally. It's something that is just a, a natural course of staying connected. You, you, you keep a branch connected to the trunk of the tree, the DNA coming up out of the roots of that structure will drive the leaves to grow and the fruit to be produced. You stay connected to the vine of Christ. Remain in Him. Abide in Him. How do I abide in Christ, Pastor? By getting in the Word, by worshiping with the people of God, by spending time in prayer, abiding in Him, staying connected to Him. The Bible says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is an indicator right there. You're not keeping them to be saved you're walking in obedience to God because you have already been saved and that's the only thing that gives you the ability to obey Him. And you do it out of a heart of thanksgiving and a desire to please Him and Him alone. Somebody say amen. amen. So Jesus is hungry and He's looking for fruit. Number two, I want to look here at the next section. So He looks and He says, May no man ever eat fruit from you again. And this is the picture of God cursing Israel in this state of religion legalism, traditionalism. And he goes to Jerusalem in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers, a bunch of brigands. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Number two, this is what I want you to see this morning. Jesus is determined and he's cleaning house. Read that out loud with me. Jesus is determined and he's cleaning house. Do not disconnect the cursed fig tree from the temple that Jesus is messing up. Now, I want you to think about this. We're in the middle of this service this morning and we're preaching and you're going through the motions and all of a sudden somebody comes in and starts taking chairs and just tearing it up and turning it over. It's okay, Miss Ann, I'm not going to... 
that right there is just a little bit of what Jesus just did. They have made the temple a place where traveling pilgrims who won't bring the sheep with them to sacrifice because the sheep could be captured, they could be attacked by other animals, by wolves or whatever. After you travel a long distance, maybe they would probably be worn and be, uh, to whatever degree, less than perfect because the animals that were offered in the temple were supposed to be the best specimens. And so what started out as a good idea was... Let's let all of these pilgrims travel and they can come to the temple during the festivals three times a year, Passover in the spring, Pentecost 50 days later, and then a great big fall festival that's going to come about mid-September, early October at the latest called Tabernacles. And three times a year they're going to be coming to Jerusalem and the, the city's going to be filled with all of these believers and there's going to be excitement. But we can't expect these people to come and bring oxen and goats and sheep and the, the very poorest of the poor to be able to sacrifice doves. Because God thought about the differing classes of the people and, and what He was expecting from them. If, if you didn't have the money to sacrifice an ox or a ram or possibly a goat, then you could bring a dove, okay? And so they've literally set up a whole section in the temple now where we've got... And you've got all, all these sounds going on in the temple. Come on, Sharon's over here laughing, going, I can't believe he's doing all this. I, how can I make it real for you? I mean, Jesus is upset... Not because they're obeying the law of God, but they've made this whole commercial connection here where they're buying and selling and, and, and money's changing hands and people are, are, have made a living out of this and they're making a life out of it and, 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 and something is lost in the sense of there's no more prayer and there's no more re looking for the presence of God, but we've got everything that comes with animals. We've, we've got all of the... Nasty smells that come and associated with the animals in the, in the sanctuary, in the place of God's presence. And, and we're, we have money that's changing hands and people are haggling over how much those two doves are going to cost and because the poor family is trying to get to the altar, to the brazen altar and sacrifice and, in order to be accepted by God. And everything had become transactional. Instead of in the middle of that seeing the grace of God revealed in something that was supposed to be generation after generation indelibly printing into them that it was going to take innocent blood to be shed in the place of their guilty blood. And every time an animal died, it was pointing to the once and for all final sacrifice when he who would become the Lamb of God would die and shed his blood for them. And all of that was obscured. All of that was confused. All of that had been lost. Jesus walks into the temple that day and with great impetuosity with what looks like complete lack of consideration for everything that is good. Can you imagine how offended you would be if we're going through our regular service and somebody comes in and just starts doing that right there? We would be livid. And that's what happens to the religious folks that day because they go, who do you think you are? Coming in here upsetting our apple cart and the way we've been doing things now for 
not just a few hundred years, but thousands of years. And, and you'll remember the great temple was destroyed and they were carried away into Babylonian captivity. When we see the, the post-exile books and Nehemiah's rebuilding the wall and Ezra's laying the foundation for a new temple and here comes Zephaniah and Zechariah and Malachi and they're, they're talking about the Lord suddenly coming to His temple and then they have 400 years of silence. And out of the blue we've got this guy, this crazy outrageously dressed leather eating locusts and wild honey prophet by the name of John the Baptist who comes along and he says prepare the way of the Lord make his path straight so that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and his identity and what he does in preparing the people of Israel for the Messiah who is now walking among them and they don't even know it they love Jesus as long as he was a prophecy the seed is coming, the seed is coming. And every prophet talked about and gave us some kind of a picture and an anointed design in our, in our mind to be able to see this. We saw yearly the high priest and we knew that there had to be finally the high priest that God would send who would end it all and start it afresh, give us a whole new creation. There would have to be a, a sacrifice that finally would end it all and would start it fresh and no longer would our sins be rolled over one year after another after another. Jesus is cleaning house. Jesus is determined. The Bible says that when he comes to the church, that judgment first begins at the house of God. And in this time of prayer and fasting and just crying out to God, he's been dealing and just blowing his wind through me in a very deep way, touching my heart and speaking to things and touching things. And I'm praying that for you. I'm asking God to pour out his Holy Spirit upon this church and upon this city and this county, the way we've been trusting the Lord for that to happen literally for over two decades now. And, and what we waited for years to happen just in the last four or five years, has it really begun to emerge? And, and I'm seeing now in seeing that happen, let's don't get back into a place of complacency and start to think, hey, we've arrived. <laughs> no way whatsoever. Help us, Holy Spirit. Somebody say amen. This is, this is where my heart is. This is where Jesus is bringing judgment on the religious tradition of all of Israel. He curses the fig tree and he cleans the temple. Number three, verse 20. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has, has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, point number three, quickly. Jesus is showing us how to pray in faith. This section of Scripture has been completely removed from context and has been preached hundreds of thousands of times in the faith movement. And what they've preached is good. It's solid because Jesus is showing us how to pray in faith. But if we lose the original context... I believe what Jesus is literally saying here when they say, look, there's the fig tree. And he says, yeah, I'm going to explain that to you. Literally, he's saying, guys, dead religion is not going to get it. It has to be a living relationship. There has to be fruit that's being produced in your life. And you can't just go through the motions and 
start seeing something that God has provided in kind of a transactional, traditional kind of way where the temple itself becomes a place of Israel judging the rest of the world instead of it being a light to shine in the rest of the world. And Jesus basically says that's ending. The book of Ezekiel also says, show the house to the house. Think about this. The permanent temple of the presence of God had just walked into the temporary earthly temple that never could house fully the presence of God. When God told Solomon, he said, there's no way any man-made structure can ever fully hold my presence because my presence is bigger than that. And they've lost sight of that. They've made this thing become commercialized, become transactionalized. It's become traditional in every kind of way. And Jesus basically says, guys, the temple is here and I am He. All of this stuff, all this going through the, through the motions, I'm overturning, I'm overturning, I'm turning over tables and all this spilling blood of innocent animals, no longer. I'm going to go shed my blood one time, once and for all. That's going to open a new and living way, the way, the way into the holiest of all. Jesus looks at them and he says, you know what? Faith is so real and the power of your words is so amazing that you can literally look to this mountain. And I believe he was pointing to the temple mount right here. And I believe he's saying you can look at this mountain and you can say, be thou removed and be cast into the sea. And God's going to move it out of the way. And in just a few verses, he's literally going to say, God is going to disassemble it stone by stone. Tear down the natural religious temple because he is now on the scene in the fullness of who he is as the living temple of God. Somebody say amen. So he's basically showing them how to pray in faith. He's pronouncing judgment on the dead religion, but he's showing them how to, in a living way, walk in faith. And I want you, if you would, Chloe, go back for me, please, to, to Mark eleven twenty four, And I want you to see this passage because it is so critical. Have faith in God. Everybody say, have faith in God. Uh, Dr. Kenneth e. Hagin took this and he would preach it and say, that it literally means have the God kind of faith. I don't disagree with that. But I think somewhere along the line, we lost the sense of the object that our faith was in. Two generations in, in the movement that he started, they began to teach that you should have faith in your faith. And I think that puts my faith in the place of God instead of having my faith solely in God. He is the object of everything. I am believing Him. I am trusting Him. When I have faith in God, when Jesus starts showing them how to pray in faith, this is what He says. He says, guys, this is what you do. When you have living, present tense reality faith in God, look at this. Read it out loud with me, everybody. Come on. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer. What's the tense right there? Whatever you ask. Everybody say present. So when you pray for something, He says, have faith. Put your trust in me. I believe that it is real and that it's legitimate to not only see judgment is coming to the temple mount, the mountain that is being removed and cast into the sea, but I believe he's also talking to a group of disciples and saying, when you face a mountain or an obstacle in your life, I tell you whatever you ask in prayer, present tense, look at it, believe that you have received it. What's the tense there? Everybody say past. Okay, so I'm asking now, but faith believes that I've already gotten it in the past. Real faith says, you know what, it's already mine. Look at this. I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and what? It, what tense is that? 
That's future. So Jesus is showing them how to live in faith, how to pray in faith, how to walk by faith and not by sight. You're looking at a mountain and you're going to believe the circumstance or are you going to walk by your senses, by your, your taste, touch, hearing, feeling, seeing, all of these different things? Are you going to walk by faith, by trusting in God? Are you going to see that God is over and bigger than all of creation? The fig tree, the mountain, He made all of that. The circumstances that you're facing, He is the sovereign Lord over that, in spite of all of that. And if you will trust Him, if when you pray, you believe that you have already received it, that is what faith does. It reaches into the future and takes hold of the promise of God and pulls it right down into the now of my bosom. And I believe and I trust and I see and I start to say, you know what, I've got it. Man, I can sit back in peace. I can rest because I know that God, God's, God's got this thing. Look at your neighbor and say, God's got this thing. Come on. Whatever you pray, whatever you ask for in prayer, present, believe you have received it past, and it will be yours. Isn't that good? But look at the rest of it. There's something you have to do. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I'm convinced that there have been times in my life where I have prayed and I've had faith to see God move in a circumstance, but my own unforgiveness hindered it from happening in my own life. That means when I'm really in connection with God, He's ordering righteousness. He's getting me in a right alignment. I can't just be rightly aligned vertically without being rightly aligned horizontally. The cross touches the whole part of my life. From God reaching to me, me reaching to God, but it also touches me reaching to you, my brothers and sisters. Not just loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That would be easy. Matt says, Amen. <laughs> but it's our brothers and sisters that we have to deal with and the people that we're living in the house with and our spouse and our cussed, blessed children, depending on your perspective. Are you with me this morning? So we have to walk in forgiveness. We have to let the past be the past and let the blood of Jesus cover it. Thank you, Jesus, that you have forgiven me. You've reordered and right, rightly set me in alignment with you. Now, God, because of that, from a place of generosity and bigness of grace, I choose to set my brothers and sisters in right alignment. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to let it go. I choose to walk in forgiveness. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together. Give the Lord praise. Man, last thing. i got to finish. The authority of Jesus. They came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? He's cursing trees. They're dying. He's turning over tables. He's pronouncing judgment on religion. It's about what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, you didn't come get permission from us. You know, you're kind of some kind of fiery prophet and you've got a lot of attention of some folks and, you know, if you'll just settle down a little bit, we can really help you. We can really, we'll, we'll sign a contract with you. We'll make sure that you really go over big, man. We'll put you on all these TV stations. We'll, we'll, we'll get you a record deal. Now, can you imagine the religious establishment? Don't you know they're all thinking like that? Who, who do you think you are? You didn't come check with us first. You didn't talk to the denominational board. You, you, you didn't, you, you, who, who are you? And so they're asking the question. And Jesus says, okay, fine. I'll ask you one question. Answer me. And if you do, I will tell you about what authority I do these things. 
Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now look how Jesus traps them. His very answer itself, not answering them, really is an answer. Because the baptism from John was from heaven. John was a prophet of God. And they looked and they said, over here in their holy huddle, and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why didn't you then believe him and repent? Okay. But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the bottom line is this. Guys, it's obvious it was the Spirit. The same Spirit of God that sent John who prepared the way for me is also the same one who sent me. And when religion is confronted with real gospel grace, it has nothing that it can say. We don't know. 